Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture, medicine, and conservation with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Polta. I'm a professor, podcast host, speaker at events, trainer for communications, all these good things. But one of the things I like to do the most is cook. And one of the things I like to cook the most, well, I don't really cook it, but I prepare it, is avocados. And avocados have such an interesting history. And the thing that we call an avocado, that we all recognize as the alligator pear, right, that that has avocado in the grocery store, is really just one piece of a much larger spectrum of, of what avocados are. And I, I just had to have a guest on eventually to do this. And, I, and we're so lucky to have Eric Folk. Eric is a staff research scientist in avocado research and avocado breeding at the University of California, Riverside. So welcome to the podcast, Eric. Hey, uh, thanks. Good to be here. Yeah, it's really nice to have you on. Now, I ran across you from your YouTube video. And I've been familiar with uh, uh, Dr. Mary Lou Arpaia's work for a long time. But you know, I saw that you know you you work with her in the breeding program. Or why don't you tell me what what how do you uh, dovetail with the with the program there? Well, um, I I started back here in like ninety eight or ninety nine, and uh, at that time I was just uh, helping out. I was a lab assistant wherever they needed me, and um, through attrition, uh, other guys retired or left or whatever. I ended up sort of moving up the, the ladder and uh, the last guy to sort of retire before me was uh, Dave Stottlemyre and he was the the breeder in this in this lab uh, for Dr. Arpaia. So um, he retired around 2005 and there was about a two-year overlap where he trained me. So from 2005 onward, I basically uh, ran the breeding program and sort of day-to-day operations in our lab down here. Um, Dr. Arpea has another lab up in the Central Valley that she spends a lot of time at. So here at Riverside, a lot of times we kind of sort of run on our own um, day to day as far as that goes. And that's so, you know, yeah, I've been in charge of the breeding program. That's, you know, basically selecting seeds to plant out and uh, field planting preparation, uh, coordinating with field managers um, in in private as well as uh, university uh, lands. So, okay. So, uh, but ultimately, your goal here is to do, I guess, maybe two different things. It's either to find that perfect next avocado that outperforms the the, the current standard, or is it more in rootstock breeding? No, there's uh, well, yes and no. <laughs> uh, I'm in charge of the scion program. We we focus on the fruit aspects and the upper part of the tree. However, here at UC Riverside, there is another program. It's the rootstock breeding program, and that is currently headed by Dr. Patricia Manasalva, and uh, they're over in plant pathology. 
So they focus on the rootstocks and they look at uh, disease tolerance, Bifidobacter cinnamomi especially, but also they're starting to look at salinity. And then we focus on the top part of the tree, the scion that bears the fruit. And so in that case, yeah, you know, we're looking at something that can replace the industry standard, which is the Hass, um, eventually replace it or supplement it, um, you know, different season uh, or potentially uh, better adapted to different environments. Um, so, so yeah, I work on the top part of the tree, focusing on fruit and uh, tree architecture too, like uh, how the tree grows and, and how it can be managed in the field. Yeah, that's really uh, important, especially when you're talking about tree breeding, that even questions of architecture are so critical. And most people don't get that. But when we're talking about avocados, and let, I just want to talk about, I mentioned in the beginning, this idea of um, that has this industry standard is really just one point on a pretty significant spectrum. So what are things that you think about when you think about what an avocado is? Okay. Um, well, uh, that's kind of a big question, but um, I mean, if I'm thinking about what makes the sort of perfect avocado, uh, and that's a moving scale, you know, but, um, you know, you want something that has a good flesh to seed ratio, um, a nice texture, and there's different kinds of textures There can be creamy versus somewhat more smooth or firm. Um, yeah, I like it to peel easy. It needs to peel easily. Um, but I mean, with Haas, the sort of the big, the big selling point with Haas, I mean, among other things, is it's, it's post-harvest storage, and uh, it stores really well. And so we also have that aspect in our program. In fact, that's Dr. Apea's uh, sort of focus is, is post-harvest physiology. So she actually has a lab up there where we can do uh, storage trials with the avocados. So, you know, I look at them, the initial selection I'm making is based on a uh, flavor, on eating quality, um, and a couple other things, like I said, peelability and seed size. Uh, but after that, you know, we evaluate a lot of other things, like uh, you get a better idea of the seasonality. You know, technically uh, the avocados we have here in California in our collection are basically year-round. You know, the Hass is a spring fruit, but we have winter fruits that are finishing up right now. Uh, we have later fruits that are ready in the late spring, summer. Um, and then we have stuff that starts to come on in the fall as well. Um, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of range in avocado. So, I mean, people ask me, you know, what's your favorite avocado? And it really depends on the time of year. Um, <laughs> You know, like if it's if it's August, weed is a very good avocado. Uh, if it's uh, December, well, we have something that we haven't released yet that's really great. <laughs> so, yeah, well, that, yeah, but that's really important because some of them have a really uh, nutty flavor. Uh, mm -hmm. Some of them a little bit um, more watery than others, which are really good to eat more like melon. Then, mm -hmm. then yeah. you know, and, and so there's you know, I think that that we really sell ourselves short when we combine or we force ourselves into the corner of what Hass avocado is. And, and, and that's really what I wanted to talk to you about today was this really interesting diversity and where it's going. Mm -hmm. And let's, let's really start with where we were. So where did avocados originate and who really domesticated them? And are there any interesting domestication stories? Well, um, yeah, actually it's a, 
yes, there are a lot of interesting stories. Uh, <laughs> uh, they go back quite a ways. Um, so, I mean, originally avocados are, are native to Central America, Mexico, um, and they actually reached uh, South America prior to Columbus uh, um, and colonization. So they were already kind of moving around the area, but they, they originated, and the way we think of them currently um, as sort of three subspecies, uh, that sort of concept comes from the Aztecs, uh, the Florentine um, Codex talks about three avocado types. And the way we, we consider those today is uh, you have a sort of Mexican highland avocado, um, and that species ranges from central Mexico uh, in the highlands up to Nuevo Leon. Um, then you have a Guatemalan sort of mountainous uh, subspecies, and that's in the mountains of Guatemala and sort of south of the Telecon Valley. And then you have um, what has had a couple different names. is probably more what you're familiar with in Florida. Currently, I think you call it the lowland avocado. There's some debate about whether it originated in the Caribbean or the lower Pacific coast, and that's more of a tropical species. So there's those sort of three subspecies that make up the avocado complex, if you will. And uh, although they sort of exist in those concepts, they've been mixed through, you know, human unintentional selection or breeding or whatever, uh, just, you know, eating them and cultivating them and moving them around. And so sort of modern cultivars in the last hundred years or so, you can sort of say, you know, this is a Mexican style fruit, that's a Guatemalan style fruit, but a lot of them are really mixed and intergressed. Uh, California, for example, has really focused on Guatemalan and Mexican uh, genetic backgrounds. But it's a very old fruit. It, it goes back before the uh, Aztecs. Um, as far as fossil evidence goes, I know the Telecon Valley is, is sort of really the, the only place I think they found very much of that. You know, one of the problems uh, with avocado is it grows in a lot of sort of wet, tropical kind of areas, and those don't preserve uh, plant remains very well. But Telecom Valley has some, and I, they found, uh, actually here in Riverside at, at our downtown museum, there is a pit that someone brought back um, that's, they, the radiocarbon dating was from 800 to 1200 BC, but I know that Recently, they downgraded that, so it's a little more recent. But it's it's definitely a very long cultivated crop. I mean, humans arrived in the area somewhere between twenty to forty thousand years ago, I think, and and has been eating this fruit and uh, interacting with it since then. And during that domestication process and that early cultivation, I, I think I seem to remember seeing that pit somewhere before, but it's pretty small, isn't it? And, and was it really much more uh, f uh, seed to flesh ratio that humans really improved to have more flesh around that seed? I think so. That's, 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 you know, that's, that's my speculation. And it makes sense. You know, um, there's a lot of uh, variation in, in seed to flesh ratio and wild avocados. Um, but uh, the ones that, you know, people think of as, you know, that, that you see in a market or you would have seen at the market, um, you know, prior to, you know, modern industry down south in Central America, those varieties, yeah, they, they would have a smaller seed to flesh ratio. Um, 
Yeah, so the, the one that, the fossil ones that I've seen, the one we have here, is very small. The seed is, I mean, probably the size of a big thumb, you know, maybe a big toe. Uh, we don't really know how big the flesh around that was. Um, I would speculate maybe it was a, a Mexi Mexican dromifolia type based on the size. It's because some of the Guatemalan seeds and the West Indian seeds can be pretty big. So, um, but yeah, you know, the, the flesh to seed ratio is, is a big, big part of the improvement process. Uh, you especially see that, I mean, you see in Mexican variety, Mexican fruits, very small often, um, it has a small seed, but the fruit itself is small, but some of these Guatemalan ones, if you go on the internet and you sort of look up like wild Guatemalan type avocados, it, you can have a, a seed that's the size of a golf ball and, you know, the flesh around that is, is like you know, an eighth of an inch. <laughs> so you'd have to have a lot of those to make a, a bowl of guacamole. <laughs> and But most of the ones, just to clarify genetics, most of the things that we see today are a combination, right? That there's like a Mexican by Guatemalan or even um, Mexican by West Indies. Uh, so, I would t so tell me a little bit more about that. And these are diploid, right? Yes, they're diploid. Um, yeah, uh, well, I mean, it, the the sort of genetic and genomic look into avocado is fairly recent. Um, but uh, we've known for a while, I know Mike Clegg's group started looking at it back in the day, and I mean, even before the 80s, you know, they, people had speculated based on just phenotypes, you know, how it looks and the different types of fruit. But the, um, the stuff in California when people started bringing it up here, they focused on locations in Central America that seemed to have a climate that was close to us. So that's, uh, you know, collecting trip that uh, Popano went on um, into like at Lisco and around Mexico City and Puebla, that area. And then also um, um, his brother, Wilson Popano, went down into, uh, or actually it was the same, the same guy, Wilson Popano did both of those. But um, he also went for the USDA into Guatemala and collected around Antigua and so high, higher altitude places. So they brought that material to California. And, you know, the initial sort of perspective on it or, or thought was that a lot of stuff was hybridized, but that it was probably 50-50 split Guatemalan-Mexican. Recently, I mean, we actually have a group from UC Irvine that's been working with us on, on generating a a Gwen genome, Gwen is one of our, our UCR uh, selections, one of our, our better trees. Uh, they generated a genome for us and, and also resequenced a couple of other varieties. And it looks like the California population, it sort of clusters closer to Guatemalan than it does to Mexican. So they are hybridized, but maybe California stuff like Hass is a little more Guatemalan, maybe like two-thirds, you know, I mean, just to sort of speak freely about it. But, yeah, generally the, the stuff you see in the markets nowadays, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a hybrid between one or two of the, the subspecies. I, I, my understanding is some of the, the Florida varieties were like Guatemalan West Indian hybrids, for example. Well, you mentioned Popano and some of his uh, journeys to begin to collect material and bring it back. When he started to bring avocado back to the States, how was that accepted by farmers and by consumers? 
Yeah, okay. Um, well, it, there was there was sort of, I'd say, like a, a kind of core group of uh, nurserymen and, and people in Southern California that were, were interested in trying new things. Um, so Popino was, was one of them. Uh, prior to him, there was uh, uh, Francesco Franceschi, and he he brought up a lot of material as well, you know, introduced Fejoa. So California at that sort of time, the turn of the 20th century, end of the 19th century, you know, had this sort of concept of a subtropical paradise. So people were trying to bring in exotic species and things like that as ornamentals, but also as fruit trees. I mean, um, we already had an established citrus industry here, but people were looking to expand into other things and try things out. So um, the earliest the earliest record I could find was someone actually tried to bring something up from Nicaragua, I think, in about 1850-something. And there was no further record of that. And the speculation is they just brought some seed up from where they were, and it was probably, probably a lowland avocado or something that wasn't adapted. So Popino and um, his work with uh, local nurseries, they specifically thought about it a little more and went down and brought back uh, varieties they thought would do well here. Fuerte actually was one of those varieties and it was it was the industry standard for about 50 years. Um, and so actually it was accepted fairly well. Um, I mean, he brought material back in the 19, 1911 around that time was some of the first material he brought back from Mexico and um, you saw your first grafted trees not more than six years before that, so that was new technology for them. And uh, the sort of first grafted clonal acreage was planted out a couple of years after he brought back the Fuerte and the Puebla and some of these other varieties. So it was, you know, growers and hobbyists were interested in trying it out. Um, and uh, I think locally it would have had a pretty good market. Um, but yeah, you know, the, the sort of you see a lot of them talking about, you know, how to market this and how to, how to get consumers on board. And, um, I mean, shipping, uh, was a big deal. Storage was a big deal. Um, and so, you know, California, you'd have people locally that would have known what avocados were and would be interested in buying them. But there were a lot of challenges to developing a sort of uh, national domestic market. Well, one of the things that is true about avocados that I, I didn't know um, is that they actually ripen off the tree. So if you have a tree full of avocados, you can pull a few off here and there, and then they'll ripen while the other ones stay kind of quiescent, I guess you'd say. And then so you can kind of gauge your post-harvest interval based upon projected consumption. Is that true to some extent? Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, it's like with anything else. If you leave it on the tree too long, it starts to get over the hill. And if you pick it too early, it's less than ideal. So there is kind of a, a perfect window. But, um, but yeah, the fruit does not generally drop. Um, some varieties hold better than others. I guess that's another thing that Hass was good at is that it had a long season. Um, you know, whereas, you know, we have some varieties that are really good, but maybe they only stay on the tree for like two months. Um, but yes, you, you can gauge the market. In fact, uh, traditionally, uh, California growers would do that because um, at one point, you know, it was purely a domestic market and there were no imports. 
So California growers and Florida growers, for that matter, would have had the domestic market to themselves and they could sort of like plan it out. Um, but nowadays with a global market, I mean, if you go down to Chile or Peru, they know when the Super Bowl is. In fact, they're probably getting ready right now. Um, and because the U.S. is a big market and everybody knows when we eat it and the Super Bowl and Cinco de Mayo as well. But, uh, you know, those are the big targets that uh, globally people that are able to supply the U.S. try to hit. And, and what's true about the industry today? And, and how big is it uh, in the U.S. compared against international markets like when you, or international uh, suppliers like you mentioned in South America? Yeah. Well, I mean, um, global production, I mean, Mexico is the big producer, globally speaking. They, uh, you know, in looking at the numbers, actually maybe pull it up here, but last year, um, or in 2020, I mean, they were up head and shoulders above anybody else. You know, um, the next biggest producer was Colombia, and that's a newer, newer, uh, newer group coming into the market. The U.S. is traditionally it's not a big producer; it's a big market for consumption. So actually, that's you know, that's that's the big thing is that we actually eat more avocados than we produce. Um, and Mexico's the, like I said, Mexico's the biggest producer. Um, and Peru is, is kind of up and coming, and Chile has always sort of been there as well. Um, it's interesting, though. I mean, you talk about uh, consumption. Like Mexico traditionally had the highest per capita consumption, consumption of avocados, um, regardless of production. And although I think they still have a higher per capita consumption than the U.S., it has decreased. You know, actually, they... Because the money's so good, they've been shipping more of them to the U.S. than leaving them at home. You kind of see that when when you go into some places like Peru. Um, the only avocados I remember seeing when I was in the supermarkets in Peru were uh, fuerte, which is a good fruit, but they were selling it like really unusual. It was a cut fruit, like halved on a styrofoam uh, display tray with the wrap over it. Um, so they were locally eating fuerte, which is good. But I think that was because the market for it, for export, was not so great. They, you know, export all the Hass and eat all the Fuerte locally. Yeah, see, that seems so surprising to me because when I was in Colombia, well, you had avocado with every meal. You'd have a half of, big half of an avocado, and it was fantastic. And that's where I really fell in love with it. And, and so, yeah, and so it seems uh, strange that we would still be the biggest consumers here. But what is our bottleneck to production? If we have all this opportunity and so much consumption, why don't we produce more domestically? Well, um, I mean, when you think about it, it's it's an it's a crop that's from basically uh, Mesoamerica, so it's it's more adapted to a generally more equatorial, warmer climate. Um, so California is a stretch. I mean, the Hass avocado originated here and it does, it performs well in more Mediterranean climates, but I mean, I would say most varieties probably would be a little happier further South, you know, with a little bit warmer weather and, and less cold, uh, nights and springs. Um, so there's that aspect of it. Um, but also it's, uh, I mean, it's water intensive, and out here in the West, we don't have as much water as, you know, basically anywhere, it seems. Um, but uh, 
you know, that's that's a big issue. When when it comes to like Colombia and places like that, they have a lot of their own sort of domestically grown avocados, and I think the inputs on those are probably it's not such a big deal. They're adapted to that climate. Um, you know, the 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 Colombian avocados I had were really good. I thought I liked them a lot, but you know, when I when we've tried to grow material, like I've had some South African material that's really good. Um, we try to grow it here. There seems to be a little too much of the sort of tropical lowland genetics, and it doesn't really ripen properly in California. Um, you know, the other thing about avocado is is that it's it's really recently domesticated, and so there's a lot of room for improvement on on production. You know, I mean, globally with Hass and, and generally the sort of the more developed commercial markets. And they, they talk in terms of hectares, as I recall. So, you know, for them, if you're getting 12 to 15 or even just 12 tons per hectare, that's good numbers. But a lot of growers get 8 to 12. Um, you know, the goal would be to get, we talked about this at some of these conferences, you know, the goal would be like, say, in the next 10 to 20 years to get up to 15 to 20 tons per hectare standard. That's that's not really a high yield, you know, compared to say like, I don't know, apples or something like that. Um, so that's, that's part of the bottleneck is that it's a new crop and people are really just now kind of beginning to figure out different ways of um, growing it. I mean, there's, there's, there's people that are looking at trying to trellis it like apples or grapes um, to increase the, uh, tons per acre yield and a lot of other things too i mean looking at uh, net house um net house infrastructures and things to sort of manage the temperature uh or even um misters for summer heat um so there's a lot of room for improvement i guess i would say basically you know well, one of the big ones that i always think about is it seems like you should be able to expand the cold range of this mm -hmm. thing because it has these genetics that allow it to thrive in Mexican highlands. And mm -hmm. so how, why has that not been, or is it a focus or is it something that we just haven't gotten around to yet? Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's, it's complicated, like a lot of answers, but uh, yeah, no, I, I think that, you know, when, when, um, when the early innovators in the early 20th century were bringing fruit and seed and material up, up here to California to try, try and grow trees and fruit, um, they were really concerned about frosts and cold. Um, I kind of feel like, by and large, that's not, that's not the, the big problem. The problem is some of these sort of marginal temperatures that just affect your yield in a negative way and make it less commercially viable. So, I mean, you can grow avocado up in the Northern Valley, like up by Sacramento, but you do need to focus on those Mexican type fruits. Uh, like Duke is an old variety that can grow up there very well. Um, people grow Mexicola and things like that, and they do well. But even those varieties, I mean, they get hit by a hard cold freeze they're going to lose some of their, their canopy and you're going to have to manage that. Um, I think, though, that like 
with the genetic improvements that we have and the variation in the population, moving up there shouldn't be that big of an issue um, for tree survival. But the trick is making it I guess, profitable for the farmer. I mean, um, and that's that's where it becomes more tricky because you have this issue of, of fruit set. I mean, avocados, if they're not managed well, or even if they are sometimes, they have this tendency to cycle their crop. They call it alternate bearing. So you have a heavy year and a light year. And if you have, I, I would speculate, if you have some extreme environmental conditions, they could set that in motion so you have a very extreme on and off year uh and those extreme environments as well especially if they're in the spring and they affect your flowering you could have very poor fruit set and um so that's i think that's sort of more than the next the next frontier it's not sort of just the freeze damage and cold i think you know commercially people can mitigate that probably with field infrastructure like net technology or, or some kind of windbreak or things like that, uh, or even sort of carefully planning where they plant, you know, based on slope and things. But it's, it's going to be making sure that, like, with those infrastructures and the trees you have, that they're able to produce, that they fruit well, uh, they set fruit well, and they keep it and hold it. And um, so that's, that's the challenge there. It's not so much just being able to grow them in those areas. It's to make it um yeah worth growing up. <laughs> yeah to make it worth it exactly yeah that's that's the big one and my, my wife is a uh she farms specialty crops and we have avocados on our space in northern florida and you know when if you get a few that's great you know you don't have to have a ton to make it but to do it at a commercial scale you really need a uh, much more performance year after year and that's a whole different thing um so I was talking before we started today about my efforts. I, I work at the farmer's market next to the guacamole booth and they give me all the seeds and I scatter them around town. <laughs> and, and someday in the future, someone may find that Archer, Florida is the guacamole capital of Florida uh, from trees from uh, Kevin guacamole seed. So we're speaking with Eric Folk. He's a scientist at the University of California, Riverside, who's working in avocado breeding and improvement. And this is the Talking Biotech Podcast. We'll be back in just a moment. The term post-truth was added to the dictionary this last year. It refers to a political climate where emotion rules over evidence. Truths are framed by feelings of a majority, rather than what is in fact reality. It happens in science too, and that's why science communication is more important than ever. And while you, gentle podcast listener, are a critical component of science dissemination. Thank you for listening to this podcast, but most of all, thank you for sharing the information with friends and families. Remind them of the good things technology can do. And of course, if you could write a review on this podcast on iTunes, it would be very much appreciated because it raises our visibility and helps us share more science. When misinformation abounds, credible sources need to shine, and you control the science chamois. 
tax-free policy decisions can only be countered by a literate electorate, and you hold a key position in helping spread the evidence-based stories of science. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with Eric Folk. And Eric is an avocado breeder at the University of California, Riverside. And he's uh, been trying to improve what is uh, a very uh, lucrative fruit for those who can grow it. And we're trying to come up with new varieties to expand those opportunities for farmers in the U.S. And you can't talk about avocados without talking about the story of Rudolf Haas. And Hass, the namesake of the uh, Hass avocado. Can you run through that story? Yeah. Um, well, so actually, much like uh, you apparently are doing in, in Florida, um, <laughs> back in the uh, early part of the 20th century in California, there were people that were planting out seeds of uh, varieties that they thought were promising uh, in all kinds of neighborhoods and going around and either showing people how to graft them over or, or bringing them budwood and grafting for them just to sort of, you know, kind of like it was like, an, like a sort of like a backyard cultivators kind of culture or whatever. And so Rudolf Haas was a postman and he lived in La, uh, La Habra Heights, California. And um, he had avocado seeds planted in his uh, front yard and around his property. And one of those, he tried to graft it over and uh, didn't have success. The graft didn't take. And um, he was going to take it out because uh, he couldn't get it to graft over, so he's going to try a different seedling. But his kids actually um, encouraged him to keep it because they thought it tasted good. It was a good-tasting fruit. And so he did keep it. Um, and this is the 1920s. It's the first patented avocado variety is the Hass. And uh, he patented it as such. And... Um, it was, uh, I think, 1932, I think, is when he did his patent. But um, at any rate, that was, um, that, was, that was then. And you, had, you saw a lot of uh, people talking about um, the Hass avocado because at that time the industry standard was Fuerte. And it was a different world because um, you had a, a preference for green-skinned fruit because Fuerte was green-skinned. And... And the industry and a lot of people and consumers at that time, they thought that people would associate a dark-skinned fruit like the Hass, which we're used to now, but they would associate that color with the fruit that was rotten, that was no longer any good. So there was a real focus on, you know, efforts to find good green skin varieties. And, and people would say this about the Hass. Um, Griswold wrote in the California Avocado Society yearbook, in describing the Hass in the like, around the 1940s, that you know it's a great fruit. You know the tree is 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 smaller than Fuerte, um, and it's less spreading, and it's you know it's got a nicer habit, and the fruit like it bears more regularly. It's great tasting. Unfortunately, it's this black skin fruit. So what are we going to do with it? And you know so that's the Hass. And ironically, you know about couple decades later when UC uh, Riverside hired uh, Dr. Berg who was the avocado breeder for many decades the industry wanted him to make a green skinned Hass 
because, you know, that was the only thing that was wrong with it. And so plant breeding takes a while. <laughs> and so a couple of decades later, in the early 1980s, he produced the Gwen, which is basically a green-skinned Hass. It, is, it has the same sort of shape. The fruit looks very similar, same season. It's even a little better because the tree is kind of smaller, um, and it maybe has a little more regular yield to it. So he did what they wanted. He created a green-skinned Hass. Unfortunately... In the 1970s, the industry started to switch over from Puerto to Hass, and at that time, they had no use for green skin fruit anymore. So, um, so the Hass, you know, it's funny when the Hass arose, people didn't know what to do with it, and by the time they figured out what to do with it, you know, breeding efforts to to make what they wanted 40 years prior were successful. But you know, sometimes you have to really look ahead to predict uh, what the market's going to want. But I guess that's kind of uh, what I always come back to is that, you know, can can we create a market for a really good fruit? And if you're somebody who, like, you know, you're a breeder, if you come up with something that has an exceptional fruit, you know, here you're talking about how, you know, they didn't want the, they didn't want anything but has. They wanted the dark skin fruit and they didn't want a dark skin fruit. And then they want a dark skin fruit. Mm-hmm. You know, why, why is the consumer, I guess that's a dumb question, the consumer decides what the consumer wants, but doesn't it seem like we could do a better job at getting people to be more excited about the diversity of this in this day and age when, like, like people will go to the store and buy 10 different heirloom tomatoes because they, oh, we love the diversity of the heirlooms, but that's not true with avocados. Yes. Um, well, I think a big part of that is marketing, frankly, uh, you know, people know that there's lots of different kinds of apples, for example. Um, you know, there was that recent release a couple of years back of the Cosmic Crisp, Crisp, Cosmic Crisp, and that made, uh, you know, headlines and people were talking about it. With avocado, I mean, a lot of people just think it's Hass. And the industry has sort of propagated further that, that not illusion, but that sort of thinking um, in the way that they name things. Uh, you know, we had a variety uh, released in 1996, and the industry decided, because of the, the, the ranch it was grown on was the Bob Lamb Ranch, so they called it the Lamb Hass. But it's not really a Hass, you know. Um, it's a seedling. It's perhaps a great-great-granddaughter of Hass, but it's no more a Hass than a Gwen. Gwen is closer to Hass than that. But they felt the need to stick Hass on the name because people are familiar with Hass and they know it sells. And again, this lamb is a dark-skinned fruit. It looks kind of like a Hass. So it's not just the consumer, but, I mean, the industry as well, if if they want to promote a new fruit, then they have to spend money on it. And maybe the thinking is, is if things are fine right now, then why rock the boat? I don't personally agree with that. And a lot of farmers I, I know as well, are interested in trying new varieties and new techniques, you know, uh, of, of growing them. Um, but if you can't sell it to a packing house or a, a handler, then it doesn't really matter what the farmer wants to grow or even what the consumer wants. Um, so it's, it's sort of the market. It's not just consumers and, and growers. It's, it's also handlers and, and marketing. So, I mean, that's kind of where it is, I think. If, if we were advertising, oh, there's a new variety that came out in 2003. 
and it took a while. Globally, people were interested in it rather rapidly, um, but California acreage has only really started to catch up in the last uh, five to ten years. So, you know, there's a gap from 2003 to, say, you know, 2015 or whatever before California starts to realize that there's this new California variety that UCR developed for them called the gem. And, uh, you know, gem is a good tree. It's a good fruit. Um, the acreage is starting to come on and people are starting to come around to it. But there are still people out there that want to call it the gem has. And I mean, I, I just, I, I think that that's a little short-sighted. <laughs> Well, this is an interesting part. We get into the breeding a little bit more. But one of the other oddities of avocado is the way it flowers. Yes. And as a breeder, now you have to be able to cross tree one with tree two, right? So yeah, can you tell me yeah. a little bit about uh, the asynchronous dichogamy? Yes, it's a nightmare. <laughs> so, so. I mean, for, for the casual listener out there, uh, most plants are both, the flowers are both male and female. So, you know, pollen is the male part, and then the, the ovary and the, the egg that becomes a seed in the ovule, that's the female part. Um, and so most plants have both, and uh, avocado does as well. But a lot of plants, especially a lot of trees, they don't want to pollinize themselves they like to outcross so they want to have their pollen go to another tree and land on its uh, stigma and, and pollinize it and it wants to get the pollen from over there onto itself so the way the avocado handles that is this unusual system of um you said it's, it's uh asynchronous dichogamy uh which is basically the flowers open at different times male and female um, so we think of it in terms of A and B flower type. That's sort of the easiest way to consider it. Um, so Hass, for example, is an A flower type. And, and what an A flower type does is it flowers as a female in the morning and then it closes and the next day in the afternoon, it opens male. So they open female first and then male. B flower type does the same thing, except that it opens first in the afternoon as a female and then in the morning, the next day is a male. So if you have an A and a B flower type planted next to each other, the idea is under normal conditions, one will be female when the other is male and vice versa. So they will pollinize each other uh, better. Um, and it's not a perfect system. You know, you get some overlap uh, if you go out in the field, especially like if nights are warm or especially cold you get like delayed flowering and things so sometimes you know a tree can pollinize itself so uh, you always i hear a lot of backyard growers asking if they need another tree to pollinize if you're just growing in your backyard and your climate is kind of sort of coastal mellow southern california you can probably get by without an, another flower type you can get by with a single tree an a or a b but in more extreme climates like the central valley where we're starting to grow stuff you really do need to have those two types and uh commercially speaking um growers will figure out the perfect ratio because as we were discussing in the case of the industry has which is an a flower type is is really the only thing that has a lot of value so they want to minimize their ratio of b flower types to has 
because you're not going to get much money for that that fruit off the bee flower type pollinizer. So that's a that's a challenge. Um, you know, when you talk about production per acre, that's an issue too. If if you're using some of your acreage to plant these pollinizer trees and you're not getting value for that fruit, um, well, that's sort of wasted wasted space, wasted wasted acreage. And we actually have, you know, when we find a variety that is a bee flower type, we, we pay extra special attention to it because it's extra useful to us. You know, we could plant it with Hass, not as a competitor, but as a pollinizer. And we actually have some varieties that are pretty good to eat bee flower types. There's some out there, people are familiar perhaps with Zutano and um, bacon or bee flower types commonly used to, uh, to interact with Hass um, or just grown on their own. Those are fine, but uh, you know it's not it's not as good a fruit as Hass, and we have some better bee flower types. So that's that's actually an area of breeding that uh, is specific to us in avocado. That um, you know we get excited about. If we get a good bee flower type tree, then that's that's spectacular. You know the other thing about this the flowering system too is is that aside from this um, this male female time time gap um, in the flowers the the trees set millions of flowers millions you go out in the, in the spring it's it's just kind of starting now but come say march it's going to be in full swing and i mean the trees just they they turn yellow with these little tiny flowers and the flower stalks and and they get pollinized ideally and begin to set fruit but the number of flowers to the number of fruit they set it's very high so you have a very low ratio of actual successful pollination um, and then you also end up with a much lower percentage of those little fruitlets that start that actually get all the way to be mature fruit. So that's, that's another area where production is kind of not exactly uh, efficient in avocado, but it's also a nightmare for breeding because if you're trying to do hand crosses, well, good luck. Uh, you know, I know that... I keep hearing this quote, I can't remember if it was Berg or if it was uh, the person before him at UCLA, but they early on did try to do hand crosses. And the number that I saw they got was 10,000 hand crosses resulted in maybe 28 fruit. And of those fruit, only four made it all the way to maturity. So that's that's a lot of labor for not a lot of outcome. So we have to think of other schemes to make intentional crosses in avocado. That's why if you look at the patents for avocados that are coming out, a lot of them refer to the varieties as being open pollinated because you just don't know. You plant them near other trees and you expect that the, the pollen's gonna be crossed in that way. It's yes, a challenge. But here's a question from that I just thought of is, can't you just graft an A onto a B and then you get this tree that would really be internally self-fertile you could um you know when, when you when you're managing a multiple graft tree like that though you have to consider the the vigor of the two different graphs you've put on there you know if one of them is more vigor than the other it's going to outcompete it um and i mean again like the, the ratio is not really one-to-one -one, ideally for a for a grower uh, it's more like one to 11 
you know, one pollinizer for 11 uh, main crop. And, and so the way people normally think of it is you plant a pollinizer in the middle and then surround it completely like in a grid with Hass. And then on the other side, there's another set so that a pollinizer sort of touches everything around it, but no more than that. But I mean, the other, the other issue as well is that you have in different climates, it could be that different bee flower types would work better with your house, for example. And so what some growers will do is they'll actually take up to three bee flower types and plant them in the same hole um, so that you have flowering going on from, say, January all the way through to June from those three different varieties just in case Hass overlaps with one of them. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like in the backyard setting, some people might do that sort of double grafting, but in commercial plantings, it's, it's not so common. Well, let's uh, talk about the breeding a little bit as we head into the home stretch here. Is What are the major uh, priorities in your breeding program. I know we've talked about some of them, but what, what about, uh, can you touch on those, but maybe also address the question of laurel wilt? Ah, okay. Well, yeah, well, laurel, I'll get back to laurel wilt. That, that is, uh, that's a, not a problem here yet, <laughs> but, um, yeah, so our, our goals in, in, in plant improvement and improving avocado, uh, like I said, you know, the main thing is, is, good quality fruit um and it has to have a sufficient yield because i mean if you if you have a really good fruit but it's not enough on the tree uh then i mean maybe that's fine for someone's backyard but it's not for production so you want a good tasting fruit that produces regularly we make a point of not discriminating based on whether the fruit is green or black skinned because of the history that bob berg came up against um, and you just never know in the future. We actually have a new variety that is an amazing green skin that's ready in the, in the winter time. Um, but it has other aspects. Maybe it doesn't store as well, but it peels so nicely. So, you know, we don't focus on the color. We make sure that we have uh, a good tasting fruit and worry about the color later. Um, the other thing that I sort of, that's a newer, a newer kind of aspect to me we talked earlier as well about tree architecture and, and branching and things like that. Um, traditionally, I think that our focus has been and has been successful in generating trees that are sort of upright, have a narrow footprint. Uh, maybe you think of them like as a sort of cylinder, you know, or a series of cylinders to kind of maximize uh, sunlight to canopy and also let you plant them in more densely per acre to get more tons per acre. But, you know, since we, we have started from a fairly diverse background and avocado in its natural environment is an under canopy tree and kind of grows under larger trees and in some cases can be very viney, we have a real range of um, canopies in some of our elite selections. And uh, I think that that's important because it's not really clear to me or to us in general, which direction the industry is going as far as are we going to keep growing trees traditionally or are we going to start growing them on trellises or pergolas, et cetera, et cetera. So keeping that diversity in, in the branching architecture 
as well as just focusing on flavor and production, that's, I'd say, sort of a good good way to move forward. You know, we want a diversity of uh, genetic background, of course, you know, but a genetic a diversity in, in tree architecture at this point where we haven't really decided where we're going forward with it. Uh, Laurel will, you know, we talk about uh, disease, um, disease tolerance and disease pressure. I mean, Laurel was, you know, one of many possible problems um, that could hit avocado. Here in California, we had a less serious issue with this Persea or Polyphagus shot hole borer that uh, attacks a lot of plants out here now. It's originally from Asia, um, but it's not as bad as uh, as uh, as the the Laurel wilt uh, that you have out there in Florida. But as we sort of, I mean, we're a global, a global market now, you know, things are moving from all over the world, uh, traveling in pallets and, you know, um, it's not even soil. We speculate that in our case with the, with the shot hole board, it probably came here in pallets. Um, and so it's really just a matter of time before you, uh, you encounter some of those kind of issues. And so, I mean, it's it's like we're seeing, you know, on a larger scale with COVID, you know, it was, if you continue, if you fund, if you're funding and keeping an eye out and looking, then you can be prepared for when these things happen, you know. Um, and so in the case of, I know, Lorecula, Raphael Lorecula now, the, the Laurel Wilt, uh, there's funding coming in for that. You know, you see it in citrus with the HLB, the Huanglongbing yellow dragon. It would be great if that had sort of happened earlier. Um, because, I mean, whether it's Laurel Wilt or something else, like this is this is something that is, it's going to happen. As, as product moves and people move around the world, we're just so much more interconnected that, I mean, there's lots of invasive diseases or pests that uh, are are going to find their way wherever they find their way. So, I mean, that's my pitch on that is, is, uh, you know, there is probably some, some very reasonably, well, for some of the stuff, like we talk about, like, uh, I'm more familiar with, uh, and root rot. That's a disease that's been a problem in avocados for many decades. We have treatment options for it. Um, we have rootstocks that are resistant to it, but it's not a, a disease that was initially endemic with avocado, uh, evolutionarily speaking. So the genes or the gene combinations that help with that disease are few. Um, and so that is an area, I think, where, you know, I know your, your podcast talks about biotech and stuff. That's, that's some genetic engineering area right there. Uh, that could help with that. Um, you know, from my perspective, I'm sort of more traditional um, in my training and in my background. My goal is we have about 250 or so uh, different genotypes in our germplasm collection. My goal is to keep as many of those as we can and make them available because when something does hit, that's where you might look to find resistance. And at the very least, um, you know, get some get some help with something or maybe make a better tasting fruit. But I mean, 
genetic diversity is a good bet. Yeah, and that's uh, these days can be accelerated with the use of molecular markers and GWAS and all of these other strategies. So when we talk about biotechnology, maybe it's not transgenics, but maybe biotechnology around marker-assisted breeding. And how much of that is working right now in avocados, or is it still a little bit too new? It's it's very new. But, um, I mean, the first sort of proof of concept was uh, Mike Clegg's group did a um, – they found markers for carotenoids and vitamin E uh, type production. Um, and we used that to select a couple uh, seedlings for, for the breeding program. Um, but I mean, the it was a very small number. And so, you know, we haven't really had much come out of it, but it was a good proof of concept. Uh, but other than that, as far as like for, for disease resistant phytophthora, the root rot, that's, that's getting there, um, you know. But yes, definitely marker-assisted selection. I mean, from from our perspective, we have a mapping population we planted out in the last. Uh, we have a couple of replacement trees going out now, but basically the majority of the trees are two to three years old. Um, and uh, with that mapping population, the goal is to uh, generate markers for tree architecture, as we talked about. Um, so actually, uh, one of the postdocs who worked on that project was coming up with, uh, ways of phenotyping for angle of seedling growth and like lignin content and things like that. So, um, yeah, you know, markers, I think we can, once the trees are old enough to start flowering, we can look for flower type markers. Uh, you know, if I was going to plant out, like I said, we like to focus on bee flower types. So, you know. If I knew that we had 80% bee flower types in our cohort, we're planting out to get our next selections. Well, that's that's more efficient. Um, so yeah, mark, marker-assisted selection is, is something that we're on the cusp of, I think. Well, what we didn't really touch on, uh, we talked about traditional breeding. We haven't talked about transgenic technology as being applied to avocado. And there's one low-hanging fruit, if you will. <laughs> It seems like that the best target in the world would be to knock out the polyphenol oxidase gene like they did in the Arctic apple. Because yes. if you could have a non-browning guacamole or a longer shelf life of a cut avocado, that would be such a game changer. Is there yeah. anybody doing this? There, I think there is a group up in the Davis area that is doing that. Uh, I know they, they, I think they, they work on multiple crops uh, trying to knock that out. So there are people working on that. You're right. That is that is an easy fix. <laughs> I, would add, though, I would add that if you look at some of the stuff we have, it does not brown as fast as Hass. And um, so Hass, I mean, people talk about browning avocados. Well, Hass, I mean, it's better than some of the ones that were before it. But I would say basically everything we have in our elite selections from what's released already, like Gem and Lamhass, or especially Surprise, to our new numbered varieties, they all brown much more slowly than Hass. So, yeah, excellent point. Because I, I had one this week. I don't know where it came from or what it was. I actually picked it up off the cart in front of the post harvest lab at work. They were getting ready to, to get rid of them. So, but this one was wonderful. It was a. It was big. It was like one of the big West Indies, but it, it didn't turn brown at all 
Yeah. So I had to ask the question. Yeah, no, there, there, there's a lot. I mean, there's some that are worse. I mean, there's a couple varieties. Like you cut them open and within five five minutes, they're brown. But <laughs> but we don't have, we, we've, we've, uh, we've moved away from those. So I, I think our, our, our pool, our genetic pool for what we're using to improve them, we, we have much less phenolic uh, response. So. Well, very good. So, you know, you mentioned that you have new ones coming out from your program. When might we start to expect to see those released? Well, um, one of them, I've, I've already done most of the paperwork for the patent, and uh, we're waiting for UC's lawyers to go through and make sure everything is, all the I's are dotted and T's are crossed. And so that one, I'm hoping that we will apply for patent for this year. Um uh, there's another three, potentially, I think, that would be on the, would be the next release after that. Those, I've collected most of the data from them, and, um, but I would need the go-ahead from uh, the IP office here to finish that off. But I would say, you know, maybe next year or the year after would be the next release. But, yeah, no, there's, there's one that's coming out, and it's a bee flower type, and it's a really good-tasting fruit, and it's a nice upright tree. Um, and, uh, I'm hoping that the patent is filed and accepted this year. Oh, very cool. So, and if you want to, uh, trial any of them under an MTA in Florida, let me know. I can, okay. I can do the, <laughs> I could do the cold heart, the, uh, cold test for you pretty quick. Okay. okay. Um, <laughs> um, but, but very good. So Eric folk, you know, thank you very much for joining me. If people want to learn more about the program, where should they look? Um, well, I, I have a Twitter handle. It's UC Avocado on Twitter, and it's the same handle that I use on Instagram. We have a website. Uh, it's really old, though. It looks like it was built in GeoCities in the 1990s or something. Um, <laughs> and that's ucavo.ucr.edu, I believe. But uh, uh, I would I would say if people have questions or they're interested, I mean, I'm, I'm fairly active on, on Twitter and Instagram. Um, cool. Yeah. Well, that's a good follow. And then the other thing you can do is go on YouTube and look at history of history of avocado varieties and their improvement in California. And this was a presentation done in 2020 by Eric, and it's fantastic. And so, you know, thank you very much for being a guest, and best wishes going forward. Well, thanks for having me, Kevin, and and um, I was great talking to you. I had a good time. And as always, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. We might have some interesting changes in the near future that are pretty exciting. So we'll talk about that soon. But thank you very much for listening. Write reviews wherever you consume social media. Um, remember that all of our work stands on the shoulders of giants and, uh, and that we always have to be extremely grateful for having opportunities to try new and exciting foods like avocados. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast, which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort. Recommend guests. 
and support us if it's a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.